Well, thank you so much, John. It is a joy to serve and know you. I was thinking yesterday that it's been 30 years since we first met at, at Grace to You, my little cubicle there editing study guides, and I've uh, been a great joy to serve alongside of you since. I came to Grace Church, moved to California from the East Coast, never having traveled west of the Mississippi. And I came because my wife and I agreed we needed to see a model. I understood something about what the Scriptures teach about the church, but I'd never seen it. I didn't feel like I'd ever seen a New Testament church in operation. And so we moved here with that express purpose. And, and the Lord not only gave me that, but more than that, He, he gave me a model pastor to follow as well. And I'm so grateful, John, for your, your influence in my life. Yes. I know... I know I speak for many of us when I say that. Well, the focus of our time together this morning is the mission of the church. Now, as soon as I say that, you understand that this topic has generated intense debate and, frankly, endless discussion and confusion in today's evangelical church. The confusion, I think, begins with the word itself, the word mission, and related words like missional. While they're good words, they're not biblical words. And left undefined, the debate quickly becomes mired, I think, in its own ambiguity. So we need to start this morning with a basic definition. Let me tell you what we're not talking about. By the mission of the church, I do not mean all of the legitimate ministries in which a church may be involved. Nor do I mean all of the New Testament commands that are addressed either to individual believers or even those commands that are addressed to the church corporately. It's not what we're talking about this morning. By the mission of the church, I mean the primary task that Christ has assigned His church. What is its primary assignment? What is your church and my church's prime directive? And yet we have to be even more specific than that. Because Scripture divides the church's mission into three distinct categories. First of all, your church and mine has a duty to God. To worship Him and to serve as the pillar and support of the truth. To, to guard the treasure of the sound doctrine that was passed on to us and to pass it on to the next generation. Secondly, the church has a duty to itself, its own mutual care and edification. We love one another. We care for one another. We confront one another. We serve one another. All of the things that you're very familiar with in the life of the church. The third category of responsibility, however is the church's responsibility to the world. It is this third category that we usually mean when we talk about the mission of the church. And that's the focus of today. Here is the question before us in this hour. What is the primary task that Christ assigned His church when it comes to the world? Now, for most of its history... The church answered that question with one voice. But since the 19th century, its thinking on this issue has frankly become increasingly clouded. 
The problem began back in the 1800s with liberalism. You know, of course, that as anti-supernaturalists, they denied everything miraculous in the Scripture, including the new birth. And therefore, the need for personal salvation disappeared. All they were left with was the ethics of Jesus. As George Marston writes, for them, the key test of Christianity was life, not doctrine. And so if that's the the position you hold, what do you say is the mission of the church to the world? Liberal Protestantism came to believe that the church must change its mission from the salvation of individuals to the salvation of society. This new approach back in the late 1800s, the early 1900s, was called the social gospel. Now, through most of the 20th century, fundamentalism in its in its early days, and then evangelicalism maintained a defense against this onslaught in the church. They maintained the biblical priority of, of gospel proclamation as the church's primary mission to the world. But eventually, the church began to drift. A major milestone in that drift, uh, there are so many that you could highlight, but I think a major milestone in that drift came in 1974 at the Lausanne Congress for World Evangelization. John Stott, the driving force in those discussions, later offered this new definition of mission that came out of that event. Quote, mission is the whole Christian lifestyle, including both evangelism and social responsibility. End quote. The drift grew worse when the emergent church came along, which embraced both the theology, as it turns out, as well as the ethics of liberalism. They called their approach missional. Brian McLaren defined missional in this way. He says, it is a generous third way between what he called the the conservative personal savior gospel on the one hand and the liberal version of it on the other. McLaren said, quote, my missional calling is to help our world get back on the road to being truly and wholly good again, the way God created it to be. I'm glad I don't have that mission. Instead of the social gospel, the new label for this became social justice. As you know, of course, the emergent movement is gone. But its rebranding of the ethics of liberalism remains. And the priority that was changed through this time period is still very much with us. The priority of social justice has become extremely popular even among many under that broad umbrella of evangelicalism. Frankly, it's, it's pretty much a wasted term at this point, but you know what I'm talking about. For example... Francis Chan, writing in Crazy Love, says, Much of the poor's daily hardship and suffering could be relieved with access to food, clean water, clothing, adequate shelter, or basic medical attention. I believe that God wants His people, the church, to meet those needs. Tim Keller writes, The purpose of Jesus' coming is not just to bring personal forgiveness and peace, but also justice and shalom to the world. 
The work of the Spirit of God is not only to save souls, but also to care and cultivate the face of the earth, the material world. N.T. Wright says, The gospel is the announcement that Jesus is Lord, Lord of the world, Lord of the cosmos, Lord of the earth, of the ozone layer, of whales and waterfalls, of trees and tortoises. As soon as we get this right, we destroy at a stroke the disastrous dichotomy that has existed in people's minds between preaching the gospel on the one hand and what used to be called loosely social action or social justice on the other. He says we need to destroy that dichotomy. Now let's be clear. As believers, as Christians, we cannot be indifferent to the needs of those around us. Like our Lord, every true believer has a heart of compassion, a heart of compassion for human suffering. And like the Good Samaritan in the story our Lord told, individual believers ought to do what we can to alleviate that suffering in the lives of those He sovereignly brings across our paths. More than that, churches may decide at times to do the same thing. But that's not the question. The question is this. Is this redefinition of mission a biblical redefinition? Or to put it a different way, is social justice either the church's primary mission or part of the church's primary mission? What does the Scripture say? Well, nowhere is the church's mission to the world and its priority within the larger divine plan clearer than it is in Matthew 28, where I invite you to turn this morning. When John asked me to preach on the mission of the church, my mind went, as I'm sure yours would have, given that challenge, to this passage. And then, of course, I immediately had second thoughts, because I thought every pastor sitting out there will have preached on this text. But I just couldn't get away from it because of its importance and because, like many things familiar, what this text actually says is very different from what many think it says. So let's study it together this morning. Let me read it for you. Matthew 28, beginning in verse 16. And I want to ask you to do something that I often ask my church members to do. I want you to read it with me as if you had never heard it before as if you were reading the Gospel of Matthew and for the first time were encountering these words of our Lord. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Before His ascension, our Lord assigned His church, your church and my church, just this one primary mission 
to the world. What do we need to know about this mission? It's all here in this seminal text. In these famous words, we will learn together four crucial truths about our mission as the church to the world. The first truth we encounter here is its singular importance. Its singular importance. You know this, but for 2,000 years of church history, this passage has, has towered like an Everest over the rest of the New Testament revelation. But why is that? Why do we consider this command to be so important as compared to others? Well, there are several good reasons for that. First of all, this command is of unique importance because of Matthew's placement in his gospel. Jesus didn't ascend until two to three weeks after this event that we've just read about here. And he appeared to his disciples several times after this. But under the inspiration of the Spirit, Matthew didn't record those appearances. Instead, he ends his gospel with these dramatic words. By recording this as Christ's last command, Matthew intentionally underscored its prominence and importance in the life of his disciples. This command is important, secondly, because of Jesus' emphasis on this particular meeting. The New Testament records about a dozen appearances of Christ after his resurrection. Six of those actually occurred on the first Sunday. The last of those appearances on that first Easter, as you remember, were to ten of the apostles in a locked room in Jerusalem. Eight days later, Jesus appeared to all eleven still in Jerusalem. That's where Matthew 28 and verse 16 picks up. Notice what Matthew writes. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. In spite of the lie spread by the Jewish leadership, it's recorded in verses 11 to 15. In spite of that, about nine days after the resurrection, the eleven left for Galilee to assemble at the mountain that Jesus had designated. Now, Jesus had punctuated the importance of this meeting by giving them this command several different times. The first time, if you look back at chapter 26 and verse 32 was at the Last Supper on Thursday. He says, After I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. That's the first time he tells them about this meeting. On the morning of the resurrection, the angel repeated this command to the women. Look at chapter 28, verse 7. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. The third time was Jesus himself speaking to the women later on that same morning of the resurrection. Look at verse 10. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee and there they will see me. Of course, later on that same day, he appears to the ten. And eight days later, the disciples are still in Jerusalem. So Jesus appeared to them yet again with Thomas present and reminded them of what he had commanded them. And Matthew tells us that finally, 
the disciples headed to Galilee. And you thought some of the people in your church were slow learners. Be glad you don't have these guys. The trip would have taken at least three days. While they were there in Galilee waiting for Jesus to arrive, seven of them went fishing and he appeared to them by the lake, recorded in John 21. So a lot of things happened, and it was only after that that Jesus finally met them on the mountain in Galilee that he had designated. And that's when he gave them this great commission. What you need to understand is that clearly Jesus himself considered this particular meeting to be uniquely strategic. A third reason for its importance The reason the church through 2,000 years has honored this passage and it stood above others is because of the disciples to whom he gave it. Now, clearly, Jesus directed this command to the 11, but he gave it to others as well. And there are several clues of this here in the text. First of all, if you notice verse 10, Jesus ordered the women to tell his brethren, notice that word, to leave for Galilee. Matthew only uses that word in reference to the disciples two other times, and both other times it refers to all of Jesus' true disciples, not just the eleven. So Jesus planned then for a larger group to gather in Galilee. You'll remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6, Paul refers to a post-resurrection appearance in which Jesus appeared to more than 500 at one time. Many commentators, I think, rightly connect that appearance to this meeting in Galilee. Now, this makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, Jesus has already seen the disciples twice in Jerusalem, and yet he tells them to take the three-day journey north, and he'll meet them there. That's because most of his ministry and most of his disciples were in Galilee. There's one other hint here in verse 17. Notice what Matthew writes. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. Now, clearly, the pronoun they in that verse includes the eleven. And certainly, all of the eleven worshipped. They had already come. Understand this. The eleven had already come to confidence that Jesus had been raised. This is his fourth appearance to them. And while they were still in Jerusalem... Thomas, the last apostle to doubt the resurrection, had embraced his risen Lord in those famous words, my my Lord and my God. So clearly, they were those worshiping. So who were, in verse 17, the some who were doubtful? They were among the 500 who had gathered. This is important for our understanding of this great commission. It was given by Jesus to all who had come to believe in Him. He assigned this mission to all of His disciples, both then and now. There's a fourth reason this passage has singular importance, and that is the deliberate comprehensiveness of this command. In this short paragraph, Jesus uses the word all in the Greek text, Four different times in verse 18, all authority has been given to me. Verse 19, make disciples of all the nations. Verse 20, teach them all things that I have commanded you. And literally, verse 20 goes on to say, I am with you all the days, even to the end of the age. 
By using this word all, Jesus intentionally underscored the comprehensive nature of this command. We can add one final reason for its importance. And and I belabor this because in our day, this is being downplayed as if it's insignificant. But there's another reason this is so important, and that's because of the repetition of this commission. This same basic command is repeated three other times in the New Testament. In Luke 24, in John 20, and in Acts 1. And although Mark's long ending is doubtful, a similar commission there at least shows that the early church viewed this command as uniquely important. Now, here's the point I want you to get. It is impossible to overstate the singular importance of this command and the mission as it's outlined here. A second truth we learn here about our mission is its supreme authority. Its supreme authority. You see, before Jesus' great commission comes Jesus' great claim. Verse 18 says, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, To all of the 500 gathered there, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, when we hear that, we have to think theologically and historically. As God's Son, as the divine eternal Son, Jesus had always possessed supreme authority. In addition to that, Matthew stresses in his gospel that as the God-man, as the Son of God incarnate, he had authority on earth even before his death. Just a couple of examples. In chapter 7, verse 29, he had authority to teach. In chapter 9, verse 6, he had authority to forgive sins. In chapter 10, verses 1 through 8, he had the right and the authority to give the apostles power to work miracles. But I want you to turn back to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, and notice what our Lord says here. Verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. Now watch verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and don't you love this, anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. What's going on here? In context, the all things of verse 27 refers to everything necessary for Jesus to accomplish his ministry and the mission of redemption on which the Father had sent him. And that authority included, according to the end of verse 27, the right to decide to whom he would savingly reveal the Father. Great authority as the God-man on the earth before his death and resurrection. But after the resurrection, the sphere of Jesus' authority as the incarnate Son of God became 
all-encompassing and absolute. He says here in verse 18, all authority. The Greek word that is translated authority here speaks of the right and the power to act. The right and the power to act. Jesus claimed on that day to the 500 disciples who were gathered, the absolute right and power to act. And he says, this authority, notice, has been given to me. The Father gave the Son this authority after the resurrection. Keep your finger here. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20. It says, when the Father raised Jesus from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, He seated Him far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He put Him in the supreme place of authority and nobody else comes close. Verse 22, and he put all things in subjection under his feet. And he gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This comprehensive authority was the Father's reward to Jesus for his perfect obedience and his work. Philippians chapter 2 says, because Jesus was willing to humble himself in the incarnation and to death on the cross, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Father gave Jesus the name above every name. That's not the name Jesus. Some of you may have that name. It's the name Lord. What is the sphere of his authority as Lord? Notice what he says in Matthew chapter 28. He says, verse 18, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. The Father gave our risen Lord the absolute incontestable right and power to rule everything in the universe. This shouldn't surprise us. It was prophesied of the Messiah in one of the most famous messianic passages in the Old Testament. Turn back to Daniel. Daniel chapter 7. Verse 13. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. You'll remember that in his Jewish trial, our Lord, after he affirmed that he was both the Messiah and the Son of the Blessed One, quoted this very passage and said, That speaks of me. And notice what Daniel prophesies of the Messiah, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 14, 
To him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Now, when you come back to Matthew's gospel, Matthew, you remember, is is driving home the theme of Jesus as king. And here at the end of Matthew's gospel, in our text, the theme of Messiah as king reaches its great culmination. And the extent of his kingdom is revealed. It extends far beyond local politics or even the nation Israel. It is the universal kingship of the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, why would Jesus say that in this context? He's about to give his church an audacious mission. And he wants us to know that that mission flows from what the Father has given him. And that is the absolute right and power to rule everything in the universe. Our Lord has supreme authority. He has authority to establish the mission of your church and mine. We don't get to decide the mission. He has the authority over Satan and his efforts to hinder the mission. He has authority over all of the people in all of the nations on this planet. He has authority to command all sinners to repent and believe the gospel. He has authority to forgive sins. And he has authority to tell those whom he has forgiven and redeemed and justified how they ought to live. He has the right to define the mission and he has the power to carry it out. And it's his authority that established our mission. I don't know about you, brothers, but I find great encouragement here. Don't lose heart. Christ will build his church. Nothing can stand against his supreme universal authority. The third truth we discover about the mission of the church is its specific orders It's specific orders. Verse 19 famously begins with that word or the second word there, therefore. Therefore, because Jesus has the unquestioned right to rule his church, he gives us our very specific marching orders. They were orders for the 500 gathered that day. They were the orders for the church in the book of Acts. They have been the orders for 2,000 years. They are still the orders for my church and yours. Let's look at them together. Here are our orders. The first specific order that Jesus gave us in terms of our mission as the church to the world is go. Verse 19, therefore, go and make disciples. Now, if you're familiar with the Gospel of Matthew, you know that this is a sharp contrast to the command that Jesus gave the disciples back in chapter 10, verse 5, when he sent them out and said, do not go in the way of the Gentiles. Now, Jesus says, go. The mission changed with the resurrection. I don't mean the eternal counsels of the mission of God conceived in eternity past. I mean the outworking of it in time. Now, as you know, the word go 
and much has been written about this, is actually a participle. Literally, the Greek text reads, having gone, make disciples. On the basis of that construction, there are those who argue that this means this is not a command to go. But that's simply not true for several reasons. First of all, grammatically, this participle, this Greek participle functions as an attendant circumstance. That is a construction that is used with an action that's coordinate with the main verb. According, for example, and there are a number of of helpful resources that would make this point. According to Greek grammar beyond the basics, a participle functioning as an attendant circumstance should be translated like a finite verb and follow the mood of the main verb. That's why most versions translate this participle as an imperative, just like the main verb that it accompanies. Therefore, go and make disciples. That is absolutely correct grammatically. Also, the context itself implies that this is a command to go. The very next phrase says, make disciples of all the nations. These are people who live in the nation of Israel, for the most part. And the other three commission texts make it clear that Christ was actually sending his followers to the world. Now, men, we can understand this that Jesus intended that some of his disciples that were gathered there that day on the mountain in Galilee were to relocate to carry out this mission nearby in Jerusalem or in Samaria or to the remotest parts of the world. Some who heard this command did just that. Peter ended up in Italy. John ends up in Ephesus in Asia Minor. Many historians believe that Thomas served in India. And about two years after Jesus gave this commission, the persecution that followed the stoning of Stephen forced some of these Christians to go. Jesus wanted some who heard him that day to leave their own people, their own nation, and to go. And he still expects some of us to go as well. It was this great text that drove William Carey and the modern missionary movement Men, we need to pray. We need to pray for the Lord to raise up missionaries within our churches to go. And can I say this? Within our families to go. We need to challenge our people to consider going. And you and I, we need to go at the very least short term to support the worldwide mission of the church. And we need to consider going permanently, if that would advance the kingdom of our Lord. But Jesus didn't intend for all 500 of these people to relocate. Some who were on the mountain that day would eventually have to go because of persecution, but many, even like James, the brother of our Lord, would remain there for the rest of their lives. So why didn't all the disciples relocate? Aren't they disobeying the command of Christ? No. Because all nations included their nation. So for them and for many in our churches to go, or excuse me, in our churches today, there are two important implications of this command to go, even if they don't end up actually going. First of all, we are called, all of us, to go and carry out the Great Commission. It may be in our own community or it may be 
around the world. But the point is no Christian gets a pass on this command. A second implication of this is that every disciple and every church must personally own the worldwide mission of the church. If our Lord leaves us where we are, if he leaves me in Dallas, if he leaves you where you are, that's our mission. That's our important role to play in the advancement of the kingdom of our Lord. But we still have to pursue a mission to the world as well, even from where we are. Jesus says, go. The second specific order is make disciples. Verse 19 says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Make disciples is the main verb of the sentence. And, and it's imperative. It's, it's not optional. What does it mean to make disciples? John Broadus has a classic definition of what this means. He says, to disciple a person to Christ is to bring him into the relation of pupil to teacher, taking his yoke, that is Christ's yoke, of authoritative instruction, accepting what he says as true because he says it, and submitting to his requirements as right because he makes them. That's what it means to make disciples. Or a shorter version, D.A. Carson says, disciples are those who hear, understand, and obey Jesus' teaching. Well, guess what? That's what it means to be a Christian. In fact, if you wonder what a disciple is, it's defined for us in the New Testament. Acts chapter 11, verse 26 says, the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Think about that. To be a disciple is to be a Christian, and to be a Christian is to be a disciple. The mission, then, is making disciples. Brothers, it is not about calling people to ourselves or our cause, loyalty to us. It's about calling people to follow a person, our Lord Jesus Christ. The goal is not decisions, but disciples. You know, we live in a, in a culture. I, I live and serve in Dallas. And cultural Christianity just surrounds where I live and minister. And a lot of people talk about having a personal relationship with Jesus. Let me tell you, every person on this planet has a personal relationship with Jesus. He is their creator, their sustainer, their lawgiver. And someday if they do not repent and believe the gospel, they're judge. But what's the nature of a spiritual relationship with Jesus? We saw it just yesterday in HB's wonderful message on John 13. John 13, 13, Jesus says this, You call me teacher and Lord, kurios and didaskalos, and you are right, for so I am. Jesus says, that's how you think of your relationship with me. You're my student and I'm your teacher. You're my slave, and I'm your master. That's what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Making disciples is not asking people to pray a prayer or to profess momentary faith in the facts of the gospel or the facts about Jesus. It is a call to follow a person as master and teacher. 
Now, how in the world do you and I, weak and inadequate and feeble as we are, come to make disciples that follow Jesus like that? Acts 14, 21 tells us, they preached the gospel and made many disciples. That's it. They preached the gospel and made many disciples. You say, well, how did they make disciples? Well, they really didn't. The Holy Spirit did through the message of the gospel. Or take Acts 13, 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. How did Paul make disciples? By preaching the gospel and proclaiming the word. And we make disciples the same way. Because the Father through His Spirit, works through the message preached to call to Himself those whom He gave His Son in eternity past as an expression of His love. So to make disciples, this is the command at the epicenter of the church's mission to the world. I like what DeYoung and Gilbert write in their book, What is the Mission of the Church?, They write, in all our passion for renewing the city or tackling social problems, we run the risk of marginalizing the one thing that makes Christian mission Christian, namely making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is our unique and central calling. Now, you'll notice in verse 19, Jesus adds, make disciples of all the nations. Matthew sometimes uses this Greek word ethne to mean all the nations except Israel, or in other words, the Gentiles. But when he adds the word all to it, as he does here in our text, he always means all nations on earth, including Israel. And if that weren't clear enough, in Luke chapter 24, verse 47... It's very clear. Repentance, Jesus says, for forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. So Israel and the rest of them, the whole world. The point is we are not to focus on making disciples in only one geographic region or with only one people group. The Father intended that for the sake of His name, for the sake of His glory, the Son would have disciples from all nations everywhere, nations without distinction. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 11, this is what Paul calls the plan of the ages. The eternal plan of redemption. It was Jesus' primary mission. In Luke 19, He said that He came... Why? To seek and to save that which was lost. This is the very theme of the Bible. You might disagree slightly with my wording, but I think you'll agree in essence with how I would define the theme of the Bible. And that is that God is redeeming a people by His Son, for His Son, to His own glory. This has always been the plan. Matthew began his gospel by connecting Jesus back to Abraham. And here we learn that the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, that through him all the families of the earth would be blessed, is now fulfilled in Jesus the Messiah. When Moses, by the way, repeated that blessing 
in Genesis 18 and Genesis 22, the Septuagint uses these exact words, all the nations. Daniel chapter 7 reiterates that the same promise was made to the Messiah there. To him was given dominion, glory, a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. And that's exactly what will happen. As Ligon reminded us last night and pointed us to Revelation chapter 5 verse 9, we will worship Jesus as the one who purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Christ commanded us to make disciples of all the nations. What does that mean? Well, for some in our churches, it means what we've already discussed, and that is leaving their friends and family and going to the nations. We pray for that in our churches, don't we? If we don't, we should. Doug is one of the missionaries that our church supports. Doug left a successful medical practice in Dallas went to seminary, and for the last 20 years, he has served in a remote, obscure part of Asia using his medical skills as a platform to preach the gospel and to plant churches. That's what we should be praying for. For others in our churches, this command to reach the nations might be as simple as using their vacation time to travel overseas and to use their skills on a short-term basis to assist other missionaries or to evangelize. And we must help every member in our church understand that even if they don't actually go to all the nations, they are still personally responsible, personally responsible for the nations. They need to pray. They need to give. They need to stay in touch with our missionaries to make sure they have what they need. They need to hold the rope for those who go. The question I have to ask myself and I ask you to ask yourself is, do the people in our churches, do they really understand that every believer must actively support the international mission Christ has given his church? Jesus said, make disciples of all the nations. And he gave that command to all 500 disciples. But the mission doesn't stop with the main verb. Two participles modify that verb to make disciples and tell us what to do next. They come with the force of imperatives and they describe the activities that always accompany true discipleship, true disciple making. A third specific order that Christ gave to us, his church, is to baptize. Verse 19 says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, we all understand, I think, the rich theology of the Trinity that's in this instruction. There is a unity of being. Disciples are to be baptized into the name, singular. There is only one God. But there's also a plurality of persons in the name, singular, of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. By the way, if you want to think about Jesus' claims to deity, think about this text. He inserts himself in the middle of the Trinity. If it's not true, then it's the worst of blasphemy. We are to baptize everyone who becomes Jesus' disciple. By the way, the Greek word that's used here is the only word used in the New Testament to describe the baptism of believers. According to every classic lexicon, and let me just say these guys were not Baptists, it means to dip or to plunge underwater. Just saying. In the early church, in the early church, this symbolic act was 
often accompanied by the verbal confession, Jesus is Lord. Because baptism is just that. It is a public confession of Jesus as Lord. Acts 2.38, Peter says, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. Acts 8.16, the Samaritans were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Acts 22.16, Paul was baptized calling on the name of the Lord. True disciples are to publicly confess Jesus as Lord and profess submission to his authority. By including baptism, by the way, in the mission of the church, Christ was showing us just how important it is. I think it's tragic how many modern churches downplay the priority and seriousness of this ordinance. In the community in which I pastor, there's a there's a large, seeker-sensitive church. And the pastor there decided that he had neglected this issue. I'm glad at least he had decided that. But here was his remedy. He decided to put a complete Krispy Kreme donut manufacturing station on his stage. Now, I love Krispy Kremes, but... And he compared, he compared in his little talk, baptism to when the donut gets coated with sugar. Now, I tried hard to decipher whether he believes in pouring or sprinkling, but I wasn't, able to, I wasn't able to decide. Then he encouraged, having heard that, having addressed that, he encouraged everyone to have fun dunking themselves, and they supplied a lot of little kiddie pools. And then, of course, everybody got a T-shirt. Brothers, baptism isn't a joke. It's a crucial part of our mission in part because it's a confession of Jesus Christ as Lord, and in part because it connects a person to the visible church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, we learn the reality that all believers have been baptized into the body of Christ. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, we learn that baptism... Water baptism serves as a picture of that spiritual reality and as a formal initiation into the visible church. That's why Acts 2 says they were baptized and added to the church. We are to baptize. A fourth order is to teach. Verse 20 says, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Every disciple is to be taught, notice this expression, all I have commanded you. Inherent in that command is a demand of you and me as preachers of God's Word for a biblically-centered teaching ministry. Where do we have all that Jesus commanded us? It's between the covers of this book. That's where our ministry comes from. We're not to teach our own ideas, but all Jesus commanded. And if we're not teaching all that Jesus commanded, all of this book, then we have not fulfilled the Great Commission. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Don't miss the main point of the statement. Notice what he says. He demands that we teach all his disciples to, what? Observe all that he commanded. 
Brothers, the ultimate goal of our teaching and preaching, as we have heard in several of the wonderful messages this week, is that the ultimate goal of our teaching is not information, but transformation, not justification, but sanctification, not saved sinners, but saints. To be a disciple is to follow Jesus and to obey His teaching, to observe it. And if our churches or our missionaries produce anything less, we are not obeying the Great Commission, no matter how, no matter how many decisions we have for Christ. A true disciple not only learns the truth from his teacher, he practices it. John 8, 31, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. Obedience to Jesus' word is the basis of all true discipleship. As we've been reminded, many pastors today are downplaying this issue of sanctification. But the Bible knows nothing of a true believer who glories in his justification and ignores his sanctification. Who contemplates the cross, but who hides from holiness. Now we should do what Jesus commands here every Sunday. This is very encouraging to those of us who pastor a flock week in and week out. Because we carry out the Great Commission when we teach our people on the Lord's Day to obey all that Jesus commanded in the Scripture. But I want you to back up for a moment and make sure you don't miss the huge point that Jesus is making here. The fact that He includes baptism and instruction, that should transform our understanding of the Great Commission. Because you tell me, where does the New Testament demand that baptism and teaching be regularly carried out under the authority of elders in a local church? Now think about what that means for our understanding of the church's mission to the world. The mission is only accomplished when we have made true disciples, when those disciples are added to the church, or a new church is planted, if none exists, and when in that church they are baptized and are being taught the Scriptures and are being taught to obey it. Now do you see the monumental significance of this text? Jesus promised back in Matthew 16 that He would build His church. And here, in this passage, He tells us how. What's the mission? for our churches, for your church and mine, to carry this on in our own congregation, but then to send out those that will make disciples and plant indigenous churches around the world and all the nations where those disciples are baptized, are being taught, are being sanctified, and are learning to reproduce themselves in the Great Commission. That, brothers, is the mission of the church to the world. We've seen its singular importance, its supreme authority, its specific orders. That brings us to the fourth and final truth we need to understand about the mission. And I love this. It's sustaining promise. It's sustaining promise. Verse 20 says, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That little Greek word translated lo there is the word that simply means to look or behold. 
in this context, emphasizes the importance and the truthfulness of what is about to be said. We could even translate it as surely or certainly. In the Greek text, there's another little nuance here, and that is the pronoun is actually included in the text for emphasis. Sometimes the pronoun is contained in the verb. In this case, it's, it's included for emphasis. So we could read it like this, and I think it would be a legitimate translation. Jesus says, certainly I myself am with you. That brings back the beginning of this gospel, doesn't it? Because in the very beginning of this gospel, Matthew began by telling us that Jesus would be called Emmanuel, God with us. But now, He's about to leave. He's about to head to heaven. He's not here with us in the way that He was here with them. And He promised, regardless, He would still be with us. Verse 20, And lo, or certainly, I myself am with you. And then He says, always. Literally, in all days. It's an idiom that means all the time, but it also means in the whole of every day. For how long? Even to the end of the age. That's us, brothers, and those who live beyond us if our Lord tarries is coming. He's with us to the end of the age. By the way, there's an important point to make here, and that is the terminal point of the mission is not when we have reached all people groups, but when He, the Lord, determines human history will end, when He has gathered in His elect. This also means that the Great Commission and this promise weren't just for the disciples then, but for us as well. Let me just ask you, do you really understand and believe what Jesus is promising here? Jesus says to us, surely, certainly, I myself will be with you through the whole of every day as long as you live, regardless of where or when you live. But this isn't some sort of generic promise of Christ's abiding presence. This is a promise as we strive to carry out this mission. And that's most, of, most encouraging to me of all. Because do you feel inadequate to carry out this mission? I certainly do. I've never felt adequate for anything God has asked me to do. But when we proclaim the gospel when we baptize new believers, when we teach the followers of Christ to obey all that He's commanded us in the Scripture, and when we send and support missionaries to do this across the world, brothers, we are never alone. When I do baptisms in my church, I always remind those about to be baptized of this verse because most people, as you know, are terrified of public speaking and the idea of giving their testimony is, is a difficult one for them. And I remind them that as I stand with them in the water of baptism, Jesus says, as you carry out this commission, as you baptize them, I am with you always. This is our hope. This is our confidence. We have our Lord's promise that He is with us whenever, wherever, to whomever. Let this give you confidence and courage as it did the Apostle Paul. 
Jesus said this, remember, specifically to Paul in Acts chapter 18, verses 9 through 11. The Lord said to Paul in the, in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. How did Paul respond to the Lord's assurance that he would be with him? The text goes on to say, and he settled there for a year and six months. Brothers, let the awareness that Jesus is with you as you carry out this commission give you the courage and confidence to settle down in the ministry God has given you and be faithful. He is with you. Our churches can do this. We can do this, not because of who we are, but because of who is with us. Now, very quickly, let me give you three implications of this powerful text. Three implications. Number one, commit yourself and your church to this mission. What does this look like in a local church? What is this, should this look like in your church and mine? Let me just give you a couple of sort of subpoints here about committing yourself to this mission. First of all, we should pray for global missions and our own missionaries. We should pray for God to raise up more, including from our church. Matthew 9, 38, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send workers into his harvest. We should pray for God to grant success to the gospel as faithful missionaries proclaim it. 2 Thessalonians 3.1, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified. We should equip and send out missionaries from our church in the model of the church in Antioch in Acts 13.1-4. We should support generously our missionaries. I grew up in churches where, sadly, I think, at times... Not judging motives, just saying that churches would support missionaries at like 5 to $10 a month so they could say how many missionaries they supported. Those poor missionaries were going to 10,000 churches to get enough money to live on the field. Be generous. John, 3 John, uh, verses 7 and 8 rather, say they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. We should shepherd the missionaries we send out. Acts 14, verses 27 and 28, when they had arrived and gathered the church in Antioch together, these missionaries who'd been sent out, they began to report all the things God had done with them and how he'd opened a door of faith. And they spent a long time with the disciples. So commit yourself and your church to this mission. Second implication, don't let yourself or your church be distracted from the mission that Jesus assigned the church. Don't give a higher priority to cultural issues or to social justice than you give to the Great Commission. This is the primary mission of the church. Number three, don't forget or let your church forget that this mission is the main reason Christ has left us here. I'm reminded of the story of the demoniac of Gadara. You remember in Mark's Gospel, chapter 5, and it says in verse 18 of that account, the demoniac was imploring Jesus, having been now healed and restored and forgiven, he was imploring Jesus that he might accompany him. Literally, the Greek text says that he might be with him. That's what he wanted. Lord, just let me be with you. Mark tells us he did not let him, 
But he said to him, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. Now, what's amazing about that is in that story, Jesus just granted two requests. He he granted the request of the demons to go into the pigs, and he granted the people of Gadara's request for him to leave. And this man comes and says, I'm now your disciple. Let me be with you. And he refused to let him do so. Why? Because he wanted him to spread the gospel. That is a parable, brothers, of our story. We want to be with Jesus, but we're still here. But everything we do here, think about this, we'll do better in heaven. Everything we do here will do better in heaven. Our worship will be perfect. Our grasp of biblical truth will be sanctified and growing and perfect in one sense, although growing through eternity. Our our prayer requests will be offered perfectly to God face to face. Our fellowship, our service, our love for God and for each other will all be perfect. So why does Jesus Christ leave us here? There's just one reason. The mission. It's the only thing we can't do better in heaven. Someday, brothers, each of us will stand physically before the Lord Jesus Christ. When I read, as Phil was preaching yesterday, I read those seven letters. Those were real churches. Jesus was really assessing those pastors and the ministry in those churches. They got letters because there was a living apostle. Someday we'll stand before Christ and we'll hear his personal assessment of us and our ministries. We'll stand before Christ, the Lord of the church, and we will give an account for how we led our churches in carrying out the mission that he assigned in this text. May none of us ever hear Jesus Christ say on that day, you only had one job. Let's pray together. Our Father... We are humbled by this text. We find ourselves completely, woefully inadequate. And yet at the same time, invigorated, eager, pressing to do this, not because we can, but because our Lord has promised to be with us. Father, I pray that you would help each of us as pastors to assess how our churches are doing with this mission. Father, and may we respond. May we make changes. May we address what needs to be addressed. May we get on board with the mission our Lord has given us so that someday we can stand before Him and hear some form of well done, good and faithful servant. We pray in His name. Amen.